are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So we're in Book of James for the past couple of weeks, and it's already been challenging in a good way, I hope, but challenging nonetheless. Remember, we first talked about God's plan for us that we be mature. And complete, but then we also learned that God would bring us towards that maturity by means of various kinds of suffering. You mature as you go through trials and tribulations. You go, you become mature as you face various kinds of things that would test you and toughen your faith. How many of you guys have been getting your faith toughened this week? Yeah, Amen. Some of you guys, all of us, perhaps. That means that whatever you might be going through right now. Whatever it may be on the scale of difficulty from one to ten, perhaps right now whatever you're going through, okay, or whatever you were going through in the past, it was unbearable, maybe suffocating. <coughs> perhaps it's causing you great doubt and difficulty, a lot of questions. The Lord is telling us through this chapter so far. He's saying this. He's saying all the stuff that you are going through, all the stuff that you had gone through. He goes, I meant for it. It was not an accident. It was not some arbitrary, crazy circumstance that occurred through the stages of whatever. Okay, it, it, he goes. I meant for it to happen to you. I meant for it because I intentionally placed this thing in your life because your struggles will strengthen your faith. Your trials will sharpen your spirit. He's saying your suffering will produce perseverance and joy. Don't we all want that? Don't we all, in the face of, of trial and tribulation, be able to smile and say, "I am God's. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can faze me. Nothing can hurt me." The Lord is trying to build us up right now, brothers and sisters. And the beauty in all this is that our great God, who gives most generously, He does not abandon us to our own efforts. Rather, He's saying this: While you are going through these difficult times, you're going to learn. It's going to be a profitable time for us. It's going to be a valuable time. He's saying you're going to learn, so ask me for wisdom, my children. While you're going through this, pray and seek wisdom for me, my children. And whoever asks for wisdom in the context of commitment to faith, the Lord He will give. Amen. Amen. Have you been praying for wisdom this week? During our past life group, uh, we actually uh, the former Pursuit Life Group, right, met our home, and we're all praying for wisdom. We realize. That's all we need right now. We need wisdom. Now, this portion of the chapter introduces a new set of troubles we often face: the issues of money. Turn to your neighbor and say this: "More money, more problem." <laughs> Isn't it interesting how much of our troubles have something to do with wealth or lack of it? So the question remains. Where is God in the midst of our financial issues? Is He at all concerned about how empty your bank accounts are? Is He concerned about who's lacking or who's poor, or is our wealth a sign of His special blessing? Now, the size of someone's paycheck is not always a good measure of their real value. Now, as much as I'm willing to promote my dear Washington Redskins. I'm also man enough to admit when we've been stupid. A few years ago, we back we signed a free agent. I'm not going to say who, just in case he decides to come day one day come to our church. <laughs> you never know. 
Um, by the way, I tend to use the pronoun we when talking about the skins because as a fan, I feel like I'm somewhat responsible. So we signed him to a seven-year contract. We gave him a $100 million contract. A $100 million contract. And so, yes, we feel stupid, and uh, we deep, deeply regret this move. He played for two seasons. Two seasons. Performed poorly both on and off the field, and it just simply ruined the organization's future buying prospects, among other things. A person's paycheck is not always a good measure of his real value. Or take, for instance, the current pop star celebrities out there, right? They're making multi-million dollar deals, sold out concerts, but if you actually hear them, they all are auto-tuned. You know what that is? Look it up. It's a travesty. It's a joke. But then you look at some of the YouTube stars, YouTube singers, there's no contract, just a simple mic, their computer, and their voice, and they're just totally rocking it. Just amazing. So many amazing talents out there. Your paycheck is not a good measure of your value. Or how about the entertainer who makes us laugh and forget about all our troubles, but he gets paid the big bucks. But then let's say there are the educators, the teachers, the people who educate our children. How much worth and value do we place on them? The real value of a person is not determined by his paycheck. Today, from this passage, God wants all of us to clearly understand that true worth, the real value of a person, is not based on your paycheck, is not based on one's education, income, or even your contribution to society. Real greatness is defined by who they are before God. That's real greatness. Who are you before the Holy One? In verse 9, says the lowly brothers in his exaltation. Another translates it to the brother in humble circumstance. This is what it means. That this brother or this person lives where you would never go. That this person wears clothes that you would never dream of putting on yourselves. That this person, he never enjoys the many little luxuries that you and I seem to enjoy every single day. To put it bluntly, this guy, this brother is poor. He's poor. But this poor man, James says, calls him my brother. That, that, this means that this poor man is a Christian. Being a Christian means that he's not only created in the image of God like all people, but he is also a child of God. He is a new creation, born again to be conformed into the perfect image of Christ. This means that while on earth, for a little while, while he, while he may wear ragged clothes, one day the Lord will put on him the finest of robes. This means that while on earth, though he may eat scraps, one day the Lord will invite him to his feast, to feast at his banqueting table for all eternity. This means that while he may live with imperfections in an imperfect world, one day he'll be clothed with the perfect righteousness of God because of Christ Jesus. This means that while most people would sneer at him, scoff at him, pass through him like he was invisible or avoid him like he had some sort of plague, one day he'll be a citizen in heaven, an heir of God's kingdom, a child of the Most High and embraced by the king. So yeah, this poor man may be a slave, maybe the lowest, maybe the most pitiful, menial servant in the eyes of the world, but before God, in Christ Jesus, he is a free man, a rich man. He may be an insignificant man right now, 
but he's a man who will live forever in glory in the new heaven and new earth. Why? Because through Christ, he even makes the poor rich. In Christ, you are rich. Turn to the neighbor and say that. In Christ, you are rich. There was a mayor, mayor of Atlanta, actually. His name was Andrew Young. <coughs> One day decided to do a little personal social experiment. And so he dressed up as a homeless man, and he lived on the streets for a few days. He would eat from the dumpsters. He would sleep on the cardboard boxes. He would sometimes visit shelter whenever it rained or just get a hot bowl of soup. And he experienced during those few days the invisibility and humiliation of being poor. But when it was all over, when he was interviewed... He said, there was one reason that allowed all this to become a little bit more bearable for me. Because he said, at the end of the day, I knew I really wasn't homeless. He knew that he was coming home to a big house, to some good food, clean clothes, a hot shower, and a warm bed. The discomfort of the streets was only but a memory to him now. And that's exactly what James is saying to us right now. He's saying, though your situation may not be the best, you're not a millionaire. You don't drive that fancy Mercedes. You're not able to buy all the things that your heart desires. Though you may be poor in the world, he says, know this, God has made you rich for all eternity. He has made you rich for all eternity. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us later. So what does that mean for us then? In verse 9, it says that we should be lowly in exaltation or, or take pride in this high position. Here God shows us what he intends to do in us through the power of the gospel. You see, this is the thing. This is the thing. God's agenda is not to lavish you all with great health and wealth. That's not his agenda. He's not trying to lavish us with earthly riches and perfect health upon those who are in need. God knows that true misery isn't from the fact that we are without wealth or that we're in physical pain. True pain and true misery comes from the inside. It is spiritual, which is why Christ came to change us from the inside out. He came to change our deadness to life. He came to heal our brokenness. If money was the answer to all, Answer to all, don't you think God would have sent us money if that was the key to life and to eternal happiness? If, if, if knowledge and knowing the profound mysteries of the cosmos, if that, was the, if that was the point and the pursuit of all things, to know that, then don't you think God would have given us an educator, some sort of answer in that sense? No. What was the problem we had? Sin was the issue we had. Sin. Therefore, he sent to us a savior. It was not money. It was not knowledge. It was sin, an issue. Therefore, he sent his son Jesus to take away from us. So God, he asks us that in the midst of the humiliation we face, whether it's from lack of wealth or lack of health, he says that we as children of God, we need to stand up tall, we need to hold our heads up high and know that in Christ Jesus, we are rich. We are strong. We are heirs of God's kingdom. We were made for more than this world. In Christ, we are rich. 
In a world that's filled with sadness and lonely people, guess what? In Christ, we have the fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters. In a world that's filled with anxiety and emotional duress and and depression, in Christ, we have the peace of God, don't we? In a world that's filled with our peers who are searching for a purpose or a reason to live, in Christ, we already have that mission for us. We know what we're made for. In a world that pines after little toys, petty materialistic things to satisfy themselves, in Christ we're all endowed with spiritual gifts to build each other up and that's useful for the kingdom of God. And lastly, in a world that's constantly trying to fit you into some mold to look like this, to lose some more weight here, or to you know, pursue this kind of look, or to dress that way, or to buy this kind of product in Christ, we're not defined by the way society says we should look or act or behave. Rather, we are co-heirs with Christ Jesus. You are a citizen of heaven, and you are a son and daughter of the most living and loving God. This is why we can take James 1, verse 2 seriously. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You can be joyful in the midst of trials and tribulations. Right now, Though you guys may be in want, maybe there's something right now you guys are saying, I, I need some money, Pastor David. Or I need a relationship. I need something. I feel empty. I need something. Maybe you're in want. God right now, know this, through your difficulty and your trials, he is readying you for your eternal inheritance. He's prepping you right now. In Christ we are rich, amen. Now, even though we know that money isn't everything, <clears throat> we still think pretty highly of it, don't we? Money can't make us younger, but it can sure make us look younger. Money can't make us beautiful, but we can buy beautiful things to wear. Money can't guarantee security, but we certainly feel a lot better having secure financial investments with lots of insurance in the back, don't we? The issue is this. As Christians, we are increasingly ignoring what we know to be true about money by placing more trust in them. And God, he does not want any of his people to fall into that trap. He's saying money is not the thing you should be trusting in. Do not rely on the worldly things. Do not, I promise you, I guarantee to you, stop investing your entire life, hope, ambition, dreams, everything upon these worldly, earthly, temporary things. Money has such a tight hold on people. That's why Jesus preached most on this subject. In fact, there are over 2,000 verses in the Bible that address the issue of money and possessions. Why? Because that's how much we've made money our God. And let me tell you this right now. It is sending us straight to hell. Throughout this passage, God is wanting us to see the value of the person in Christ underneath all the circumstances. But now here in verses 10 and 11, God wants to show us the meaninglessness of the circumstance themselves. Verse 10 and 11 states this, And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, the only place I've ever truly lived is here, Northern Virginia. Go Nova, right? A place where, like last night, it can rain a lot. I love this place. It's got four seasons. The winters are cold like it should be. 
The summers are hot like it should be. Spring is warm and falls are cool and beautiful. When I was backpacking across the world, I was given the opportunity to travel to the outback of Australia. I'm not talking about the restaurant. I, was, I had the opportunity to go, but because of extenuating circumstances, I was unable to go. But I do recall having a conversation with a few travelers who did go on that trip and came back afterwards. Now, let me tell you this. Today, tomorrow, and the day after, Tuesday, is supposed to be around 90, 97 degrees Fahrenheit. It's going to be hot for the next few days. Well, when I got to Sydney on New Year's Day, their weather is opposite from ours. Remember, they live upside down, right? When, when I got to Sydney on New Year's Day there, it was hot. It was 46 degrees Celsius. I quickly used my trusted electronic travel guide to convert it because I'm American, right? We don't believe in Celsius. And it quickly became, and I converted, it was 114 degrees. 114 degrees. Granted, it was, it was not usual, okay? It was a freak heat wave that hit us. But the backpackers told me that when they traveled in the outback, it was constantly that temperature throughout the week. It really was just a desert. And all they could see were just dead things. Trees that were dead. Rocks that were just hot. Just dirt as far as the eye can see. There was nothing there. Now, these verses, it paints a vivid picture for us. God says a rich man is like a flower. In this context, actually, a wildflower. In the context of this passage, considering their geographic location, a wildflower grows in the desert, and, and it, it, it appears in the early spring. And during that time, there's like a fullness to it. The flower is truly beautiful when it comes out, when it emerges. It's beautiful, it's full, it's vibrant, and it gives hope that spring and summer will be filled with lush greenery and fertile ground. But once the actual summer rolls around, and the blazing sun in the desert heat reach high above and start just singeing everything that it touches. You see, the heat becomes too much. The grass begins to turn brown. The flowers wilt, and that wildflower of the desert, it soon dies. And God is saying that this rich man is like that flower. He may look impressive at first, it may seem it's got everything it needs at first, but it'll only be for a moment because soon after he appears, he'll be gone. You see, in the midst of glory and eternal security, money will not last. Brothers and sisters, don't be envious of those who have much. If anything, be envious of those who give much, but not those who have much. True poverty although isn't the lack isn't because of lack of wealth. True poverty is a hopeless spiritual condition that all people have if they're apart from Christ. That's what true poverty is. You don't know Christ. You are poor. Ephesians chapter 2 describes it so well. The rich are separated from God because of sins, just like everyone else. The rich cannot buy or earn their heavenly citizenship, just like everyone else. Even the rich are hopeless outside of God's covenant, just like everyone else. The rich cannot draw near to God in their own strength, just like everyone else. Even the rich are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're unable to save themselves, just like everyone else. That's why Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the words holds truer than ever, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All 
And there is this false religion that equates wealth and health with the approval of God. You got money and you're feeling good, that means God, that means God loves you. You don't have money and you're not feeling good, well, God's cursing you right now. You're making him very unhappy. If you're doing well here on earth, no trials, no suffering, then they say you're somehow doing well up there, so to speak. Worse than physical poverty is spiritual poverty. But God highlights from this text that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you have all the money in the world or not. If you do not have Christ, you are foregoing the greatest eternal security anyone could ever have. Maybe for some here, it's not wealth you're holding on to, and I'm, and I'm wrapping up soon. Maybe it's not money you're holding on to. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's someone else. There's nothing in this world that can give us the very thing we need. We need a Savior. Not new information. Not more friends. Not a family. You know what? You know what's sad? Everyone thought having friends was the key to things, especially in high school. I wish I was popular. Then MySpace came around. Remember MySpace? No? It's okay. It's Next thing you know, what happens? I got two friends. Next day, what happens? I got four. You double that. You triple that. Next thing you know, by the end of that one year, you have a thousand MySpace friends. How are people feeling after that? Did it help them? Did it help their esteem? It did nothing for them. Nothing. Not more friends, not a family, not marriage, not children, a new career. Nothing will save you from our sins, but salvation through Christ Jesus. Everything else we place our lives and hope into in this world is like the flower in the desert. It may look good for right now, but it will, I guarantee, Scripture guarantees, it will wither away. So I want to ask you this. What are you banking on today? Are you thinking if your marriage gets fixed that life will be complete? No. Are you thinking that if you get that job, that life will begin to make sense? Sorry. Are you thinking that if you have financial security, that you'll finally be able to live without burdens? Are you kidding me? Are you thinking that if you're finally healed of that sickness or that depression or that issue, that your life will no longer be filled with trials and suffering? No way. Nothing in this world was meant to last because nothing in this world was meant to save us. 1 Peter 1.25 says, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord, now that's what endures forever. Maybe today needs to be a day where we abandon our worship of impoverished, fleeting, empty things. And yes, that thing could very well look like our husband or even our wives. That thing could very well look like even our children. That thing could even look like what? The, the, the career that you've been building up this entire time. Maybe today we need to rededicate our lives to the eternal, lasting, full, life-saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. What do you need to let go of today in order for you to hold on to Christ? What is in your life that you fear letting go of? When, as I'm asking you this question, there's someone or something in your mind or in your heart you're saying, I can't. Perhaps some of you guys are saying, I won't. What is it? Who is it? And ask yourselves, why? 
Why can't you let go of this thing? Why can't you let go of this person? Why am I so fearful of not having this or that or him or her? We need to take this time to pray to God today. We need to pray that, Lord, these are your promises. You say this is true. You say that you are the complete satisfier of all things. Then let your promise become a reality in my life. Let your promise of saying that Christ Jesus is all we need really truly become all we need. Let's pray that his words will remain in us. Let's pray that the grip of worldly things will loosen its hold on us so that we may be free from it and free to have God and only God. You see, the only way to surrender your heart, the only way to completely, fully surrender your heart to God is to first surrender your love for all other things. That's where it starts. Let's go before him today in humility. Let's pray. And so I ask you again, with the grace and truth and love of our Lord Jesus Christ because he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he died for you. And let me say this, he loves you so much that he refuses to allow you to remain just as you are. What is it in your life that you just can't let go of? Is it wealth? Is it, is it money? And, and let me tell you, that's, that's not a foolish thing either because we all deal with that. Everyone. Are you willing to admit it though? Is it a relationship with a person? A person who's not helping you grow but in fact is separating you from the Lord. Hurting your spirit. And let's, let's, let's get rid of that whole notion that we're somehow the one to bring them to the gospel. Enough of our Savior complex. No. Only Christ Jesus can do that. What are you holding on to? Who are you holding on to? God is saying right now, let it go. Surrender it. Lay before the foot of the cross and know that I have died for you to give you freedom, release you from those burdens, from, the, from those pains. That in me, in Christ Jesus, only in him, you see, will you find the truest of all freedom, true redemption, true restoration. Maybe it's a fear of yours. I don't know. Maybe it's fear of man that you just can't let go of. I just have to please my parents. I just have to, I just don't want to go against the grain of society. I want to be, I'm a people pleaser. 
And so it's hard for you to live a life that's truly radical for Christ. It's hard for you to live evangelistically. It's hard for you to have the gospel always at the tip of your tongue, wanting to spew it out and share the good news of Christ Jesus, but you just can't because you're scared. You're scared of what they might think of you. You're scared that you might get persecuted. You might get discriminated. You might get even fired. You're scared. I mean, for others, it's just, you just want the American dream. You just want to pursue after your own pleasures. Friends, I, I ask you and I challenge you, do not think and do not live so short-sightedly. There is more to life than this life here on earth. There is eternity. And God is saying, I want to prep you for that. I want to get you ready for that. And for those of you who do, do know Christ and are in a relationship with him, how is your relationship with him? Are you walking with him every single day? Are you excited and passionate? It may not always be like the spiritual high that you may expect, but are you constant with him? If you want no part in him right now here on this physical life that we live, then what makes you think you want him for all eternity? These are the questions we must ask. But I want to encourage you guys too. Don't remain introspective. Don't remain, this is just what I need to think about. This is what I need to dwell upon. No. Lord is asking you, walk out in obedience. Trust my words and walk out in obedience. Friends, you may not understand the will of God, but that doesn't mean that we should not obey the word of God. Trust in his words and walk out in obedience, if you know, even if you don't get it. I want to give you guys an opportunity now just to pray as we, before we go to our last song. But what's keeping you? What are you unwilling to let go? Okay, let's pray.